financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with industry veterans Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman. Today is Tuesday, August 8th, 2023, and I'm on this evening with a good friend and fellow Labenthal Financial Advisor, David Walker, sitting in for Dominic, who's out of the country. How are you, David? Michael, I'm doing great, and I don't even sound like Dom, so uh, no one will be fooled, but it's great to be with you. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate you making the time at the last second, coming to us from uh, Colorado. And uh, normally what we do, David, as you know, is I just give you give our audience a quick update on the market. Um, last week was a rough week for the market. Uh, today wasn't great, although it had a nice little bit of a rebound. Last week, the S&P was down 2.2. The Dow was down a little bit more than one, and the NASDAQ was down almost three. But in spite of that, David, the S&P is still up over 17%. The Dow was still up over seven. And the NASDAQ is up a very healthy, uh, about 31%. So in spite of the little sell-off we've had the last uh, couple of days or weeks, the market is still pretty healthy. We got most of the earnings out of the way, David, and 70% of the companies beat earnings last quarter. So although there's a little trepidation right now, I think so far so good for the markets. I think trepidation is the word. And uh, I was coming up with another word today. The, the market seems to be galumphing along. You know, it, uh, it doesn't have a lot of momentum either way, but uh, I think we, we've kind of been calling for this uh, heading into the fall months. Uh, a little retrenchment goes a long way as far as our being positioned to take advantage of some lower prices. And uh, so to me, it's welcome. I'm sure you and Dom feel the same way. Yeah, you. I know Dom was joking this morning on our morning call with our advisors how we've kind of been rooting a little bit for a pullback because, you know, a pullback is inevitable, obviously, and a little 5 or 10% retrenchment is, is a good way to reset the market. And in the month of August, David, we don't frequently don't need a lot of reasons for the market to sell off. A lot of people are on vacation. There's typically lower volume in August. So I just think Apple having um, some, some not great news in their earnings report last week and some of the Fed chiefs, still chirping about needing to raise interest rates more was more than enough of a catalyst for the market to say, hey, let's take a little bit of a break here. August is one of those months, isn't it, where uh, some people take a break and just walk away for a while and then come back in September and things have a way of of uh, sort of gearing down and taking off. I've noticed that. And also, I, I must say, I don't remember exactly what Apple's earnings were, but it's uh, still an unbelievable powerhouse, a $3 trillion powerhouse that uh, seems to be the ultimate big bank, if you will, as far as technology companies go. Yeah, absolutely. But as we, again, as we talked about this morning that Dom pointed out, you know, because Apple is literally down, and I didn't check the price at the close, but Apple's down about 20 bucks in the last two weeks. And, and because they have so many shares outstanding, a lot of money 
got evaporated quickly. And, and that's what the headlines talk about. You know, you know, assets being evaporated and the stock being pulverized. Um, you've been you've been a man of the media your whole life. So, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and, and those are the headlines that that the average investor gets to see. Not looking at the backstory that the stock is still up about $80 this year from where it opened. Well, I think we often talk to our clients and say that something along the lines that we're looking for a pullback or we think the market may have reached some dizzying heights and maybe running out of oxygen a little bit. And uh, and people always uh, give you that slightly cross-eyed look about that, wondering you know what you're really saying. But it, it does get ahead of itself sometimes, it, out over its skis, if you will. And uh, I think you know part of what we do, if we have a claim to fame, is to be a little bit patient in that regard so that we can seize opportunity on behalf of our clients and on behalf of ourselves for that matter. I think patience, I think patience is a great word. And 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 sometimes patience could be misinterpreted for being overcautious, being too conservative. But at the end of the day, you're right. We we we're not trying to time the market, but sometimes we get certain signals that and you again, you being Colorado, you know a little bit about getting over your skis, um, where the market just gets a little ahead of itself. Well, you'll have to talk to my all-American if you want to know anything more about skiing. Uh four-year All-American back in the heydays of Wyoming and then a couple of years as a pro ski racer. But uh, Elizabeth is one of those people who really does appreciate caution. And uh, I think most of our clients do too. You know, I, I rarely get criticized for being too cautious or too careful or wanting to hold back on a great investment idea if we think maybe it's a little pricey. Uh, I have heard an occasional word of doubt when we've gotten a little uh, anxious or, you know, too interested in uh, forging ahead, which we usually don't do. David, let me ask you this. You know, most of our clients are here on the East Coast. You're you're in, a, you know, two other time zones. Do you hear a lot of concern about recessions and interest rates? Are these questions that you're fielding as often as we are here? I don't think so, but I, I could be wrong. I did have a conversation recently with a couple of clients who were asking about recession. And I said, well, you know, there's certainly a recession going on if you're in banking in the mid, small to mid-sized uh, banking industry. It may even feel like more than just a recession. But I think otherwise, it, it's a little uneven. It, most people, I don't think, really are that worried about it. I think it's one of those things where it has been talked about so many times, the word almost has no meaning at this point. It's like when you hear about a few billion dollars here or there in terms of uh, treasury debt, you, you just shrug it off. I mean, it's, what do they call it? Budget dust? And mm -hmm. as far as what a recession means to people, I think it's more about what they feel, you know, in their own personal pocketbook and, you know, what happens when they go to the market when they're shocked, which does happen routinely in these days. So those are the kinds of comments that I hear often, just how expensive everything is. And, uh, you know, when, when is it going to slow down? When is this going to stop? I don't think anyone really expects it to stop, but they'd like to see it pause for a while. Well, inflation, inflation has definitely slowed down. And I, I think I've said this now for three weeks in a row when we did this podcast, just because inflation is slowing down doesn't mean prices are getting less expensive. All it means is prices are going up less fast, right? So so with milk, I don't know, right. costs a dollar fifty or two dollars. 
It's not going to get cheaper. It's just not going to go up and get more expensive as quickly as it did a year ago. Right. And I think also that if you have any perspective at all, going back two, three, four years and you see, wow, I mean, I've heard various numbers, but things are 17 to 20 percent more expensive sort of across the board. And in some cases, much more expensive. Well, that that's painful if you're like me and you're sending a, a kid off to school or a couple of kids are in school now, one in prep school, one in uh, one in college. And just every little incidental seems to be more expensive. And you're looking for ways to make that work. So I, I think that impacts businesses in lots of subtle ways, maybe not too dramatic yet. But of course, if it doesn't draw back a little bit more, it may become more dramatic. I'm glad you've talked about businesses, because my next question to get a sense of what's going on on the West Coast is, are you having a lot of clients having any fear about being laid off or losing their job? So that's an interesting point, because first of all, there have been a number of layoffs sort of across the board, in particular on the West Coast, because of high technology kind of leading, you know, talking about if it bleeds, it leads. And if you look in terms of the economy and companies that are leading by bleeding, there are many more layoffs in technology. There's sort of a wave. I talked with uh, a very uh, interesting client this morning, speaks several languages and has traveled around the world. And she was talking about the fact that, you know, she actually went through a layoff. And at one point she said, you know, I'm not sure this made all that much sense in terms of our business. Our business was going well, but so many people jumped on the bandwagon because all of the other similar companies in technology were laying off. So our leadership felt like they had to lay off too in order to please Wall Street, but also to sort of keep up with the trend. And I think it also gives them an excuse to make those tough decisions. If everyone else is doing it, then it's a little less painful in the great context because you're not alone. So, uh, but are, are people day to day worried about it? I would say not necessarily. David, if I learned anything doing a podcast for two years is I love a good segue. And, and, and our guest tonight is Hannah Pryor, who is a workplace performance expert. And and uh, and like you and I, a former executive recruiter, right. and uh, and a brand new author. She wrote a she wrote a book called Good Awkward, which is how to embrace the embarrassing and celebrate the cringe to become the bravest you. So she's a workplace expert. So um, I look forward to the conversation that we're going to have with her, and uh, we will be right back right after this break with Henna Pryor. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenton Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor, 
at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Laventhal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my substitute co-host tonight, David Walker, fellow financial advisor at Labenthal, and our guest this evening, Henna Pryor. She's a speaker and workplace performance expert and a brand new author. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. Feels so good. The name of the book is Good Awkward. I want to get this right. How to embrace the embarrassing and and celebrate the cringe to become the bravest you. So that's a that's a that's a lot. That's a, that's a great title. So what's the genesis of of the book? What motivated you to narrow in on this topic, Henna? Yeah. So you know, it's funny. You live in your own skin for many, many years, and you don't really think twice about your lived experience until you start to see things a bit more clearly in the rearview mirror. So the very beginning of the genesis is I was always awkward. Awkward kid, awkward teenager, you know, firstborn of immigrant parents. They were new to the United States. You know, along came me 11 months later. And having never lived in this country, my, my clothes were always a bit different. My food in my lunchbox was always a bit different. So I always like to say that my origin story was one of bumpy edges. You know, I just wanted to fit in when just no matter how hard I tried, I would just stand out. And so that continued through middle school, through high school. In college, I started to find my people. And, you know, I think in college, you're able to find the fellow awkward folks or the folks that, you know, were a bit in their own skin. But what created the origin of this book specifically was in the personal and professional development space. Many of us love Brene Brown. Brene Brown, you know, really brought a lot of conversation around vulnerability and courage. And I remember it listening to her podcasts and she would close with a tagline. She would say, stay awkward, brave, and kind, especially on her leadership podcast, stay awkward, brave, and kind. She would say that. And I remember thinking to myself vividly, I know how to stay brave and I know how to stay kind but stay awkward. I was awkward my whole life. That feeling stinks. I don't want to stay Ooh. awkward. Yeah. And so she, she said it and I said, I, I, I can't get on board with that yet, but I wonder why, because it feels like there's something here worth unpacking. And that led to the deep dive into an emotion that no one has really explored before in business. So the book, how long did, how long did it take you to write the book? And is the book based on 
your work that you've done and the TED Talks you've done? Is it based on personal experience? Is it, is it your recruiting career? Is it a combination of all of the above? Yeah. All of the above, for sure. I mean, I, the idea came a couple of years ago, and uh, the TEDx is actually, I got two TEDx's in the span of 90 days, which was chaotic. So the book went to the proverbial and literal shelf for a little while, and then came back. But no, the entire thing is based both on my own lived experience, but you know, in executive search and executive recruiting, which I know you both did, you have a front row seat into what makes people feel good in their workplaces, what makes them leave workplaces. And so I would watch, you know, for 14 years, uh, leaders who would put on a show that would make their employees feel less than seen. I would see people feel like they couldn't bring their whole selves. That would cause them to leave. And then as an executive coach, I would hear clients say all the time, Hannah, I want more confidence at work. I want to take more risks. I wish I could just be more courageous. And the narrative for so long in professional development was, well, do more of X right? Just do more of X, Y, Z, and you'll be able to do those things. But what I found in talking to people was it wasn't about doing more of something. It was there was something standing in the way. And that something tended to be, hey, when I want to go take this risk, I fear I will look awkward. I will feel awkward. And that to me became an obstacle that not needed to be removed. And, and the exploration into that specific obstacle became a bit of a, an obsession after that. Well, and Michael and I used to joke about doing recruitment in the financial field was really the insecurities business as opposed to the securities business. It was a bit of a play on words, but actually at the heart of that is really sometimes what motivates people more. As we know, the desire for gain as opposed to the desire to avoid loss. Often people are motivated much more to avoid loss yep. than they are to perceive and approach gain. And uh, so that's part of the heart of what we do every day, isn't it, Mike? Absolutely. And and Hannah, David and I recruited stockbrokers. Mm. You know, this was back in the 80s. They were enormous egomaniacs. Enormous. Yeah. And we would interview it them. Kind of like that. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and we could see the awkward. So So in your work, how do you combine the, the the person who sees themselves one way, right, mm -hmm. as as this master of the universe? Sure. But is this really terribly awkward person? Yeah, I love this question because it actually speaks a lot to the heart of the working definition that I use in the context of the book. So let me let me lay that on the table for the frame of reference. Awkwardness is what we feel when, for a moment in time, the person we believe ourselves to be our true selves that we truly believe ourselves to be is at odds with the person that for a moment they see on display. So our internal feeling doesn't match their external reality. So if I'm a stockbroker with a big ego who knows what they're doing and feels really, you know, kind of on point with my work and I make a massive flub for that moment, be it a split second or a few minutes, that internal, you know, I am this type of person who knows what I'm doing. And here I am. I said this dumb thing publicly. External reality is now people think I'm a big dummy who doesn't know what I'm doing. For that moment, we feel the emotion of awkwardness. There's a gap between our two selves and it's living in that space where we need to learn how to examine, is it serving us or is it holding us back? For some brokers, I would imagine 
they're very comfortable in that space. They can say, well, not great. Move along, right? Move through. For others, it can be paralyzing and it can stop them from taking an important risk the next time. This uh, gets to authenticity as well, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. I, I know, I've known Mike a long time and, and Mike's yeah. an authentic guy and you know where he stands, you know what he feels. And uh, I, I like to think I'm the same way, but I think being authentic with your client, whatever your business is, being honest about the things you don't know, in addition to some of the things that you think you do know, is, is it's not just a winning posture, uh, that reassures the client. It's the best way to build a client into a lifelong client and to have that client trust you and work with you, yeah. uh, you know, based on that authenticity, which I think we're both proud of, Mike. I, I could be wrong, but I, I know that's you. But thank you. And, and same here. So, so Henry, I want to I see how this relates to clients as well and, and, yeah. and, and how that relationship works with, with, you know, one or the other being awkward. So, so David is right. David and I met, I think, forty-one years ago. It was a long time ago, and I was his. I was his assistant. He was learning me, teaching me the ropes as an executive recruiter. So he would frequently call me over to his desk. This is when we all had to wear ties and suits, mm-hmm. and I would lean over, and inevitably, no matter where his coffee was. That's where my tie ended up. And I would dip my tie in his coffee. True story. Every single day. For I mean, I don't know how long. It happened all the time. And I just embraced it. I embraced that awkwardness. And I said, well, either, either he's going to move his coffee one day, or I'm going to stand someplace else. Or this will just be our routine for as long as we know each other. But yeah. there was... There was never that fear for me because I trusted David. I knew he sure. wasn't going to fire me because you know I didn't couldn't figure out how to not dip my tie in his coffee. But there I was in my early twenties, and I couldn't be more awkward, right? I mean, it was sure. just was it, it was on display every single day. Yeah, yeah. I want to. I love this story because I first of all, it's adorable. <laughs> so I love that this Thank is you. the origin of your relationship. It is true. Second. Second of all, there's there's two camps through which we can explore awkwardness. So one is in life's unplanned events. So I imagine the first time the tie went into the coffee, it was not planned, right? This was something that just happened. I imagine in subsequent times, while you didn't do it on purpose, it sort of became a thing, right? You're like, eh, it's probably going to end up in there. No big deal. But when awkwardness occurs in life's unplanned moments... You know, which you can't predict. You can't plan that I'm going to trip over this crack in the sidewalk. You can't plan for certain forms of awkwardness. In those moments, you know, building up the tolerance is important. But I think what what David started to speak to, which is this relationship between awkwardness and authenticity, this is where I think, especially for your audience, the data gets really juicy because right now, authenticity is the word, right? We've heard it. It's It's the buzzword of the moment. Everyone is seeking how to be more authentic at work. And so I often talk to clients who say, you know, I think it's really great that my leadership, my, my clients, our environments are con- you know, concerned with authenticity at work. And yet, how do I actually be that? I almost feel guilty that I don't know how to show up that way at work. And so often when people think about authenticity, what they're not thinking about ahead of it are, are the obstacles to it, of which awkwardness is one. So I'm going to make this very concrete. There's a beautiful study done by Francesca Gino out of Harvard and her team of researchers where 
they talked about the planned forms of awkwardness, which is I'm doing something that's a little out of my growth edge, but it has the potential to go wrong. And this uh, study specifically was for entrepreneurs who were pitching for funding. So there was 166 entrepreneurs, they were pitching for funding. And what's really fascinating about this study is that those entrepreneurs who were catering to their audience, so catering their definition was essentially performing what they were saying in such a way that they thought it would please the person on the other side, right? It would match their desires or expectations of them. Those who catered versus those who kind of came out of the gate, stumbly, fumbly, awkward edges showing, not sure if this is what you want to hear, but I'm going to go with this anyway, probably dip their tie in a coffee along the way. Those who came out entirely themselves, stumbles, fumbles and all, were three times more likely to get the funding than those who catered to their audience. So there's, you know, gobs, decades of, of, you know, kind of conditioning we have about impressions matter. They do, but increasingly we're starting to see through the performative type of impression making. And from an investor and as a funding standpoint, the data was crystal clear. Those who brought their full selves, those who were willing to dip their tie in the coffee and have a laugh over it, they built connection faster. They built trust faster. And these things cannot be understated when we are trying to raise capital, when we are trying to win pitches, when these things have direct correlation to business performance. Anna, is there specific language that you'd recommend in terms of, I guess, allowing people to feel awkward as they ask questions? For Michael and I, that's very important. You know, mm-hmm. we have clients sometimes who don't want to appear as if they don't have the knowledge that they feel they should, but we yeah. we do everything we can to uh, extricate what's on their mind, what's in their heart, what is it that they need to talk about? And, and I'm just wondering, are there specific words or sp- specific phrases that you'd recommend yeah. to get to that? There are, and, and before I introduce them, I wanna make a distinction that I think is underneath of your question. Often sure. people confuse or tangle awkwardness with ineptitude. Mm-hmm right? These are distinct from one another. Ineptitude implies a lack of skill or a lack of knowledge or a failure to execute. So the analogy I use in my book is, I would not want to hire an inept anesthesiologist, but I'd be perfectly fine hiring an awkward one, right? So we have to be very careful not to confuse the two. Awkwardness is, again, it's an emotional state. It doesn't imply that we, you know, kind of show all our cards as we have no idea what we're doing. But what it does imply is if you're not 100% sure, it may feel slightly awkward to say, hey, you know, I have a solid idea of what you're going for here. I may not get it right, but let me try this on for size, right? I feel a bit awkward about shooting this out onto the table, not knowing if it's going to be received the way I think it is, but let's go with it anyway. It's actually counterintuitive to folks, but the naming of awkwardness diffuses the awkwardness. When we avoid it, it actually intensifies it. So to say, hey, this feels a bit awkward, but is actually one of the fastest ways that we can remove its power and move to sort of the next level of discussion. And now let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I, want, I do want to talk about how, how our clients can apply that to themselves, as David said, when they're communicating with us and feel more comfortable in talking about things that might make them uncomfortable. You got it. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Henna Pryor. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
when you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing, but I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom, but the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm-mm, less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash, ask your advisor mm-hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund less taxes or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X. The tax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with my co-host this evening, David Walker, sitting in for uh, Dominic Tabella, and our special guest this evening, Hannah Pryor, who's a brand new author of a book called Good Awkward, How to Embrace the Embarrassing and Celebrate the Cringe to Become the Bravest You. So, Hanna, we were talking about workplace, and, and, and let's try to relate this to what David and I do. We inevitably have awkward, well, not awkward conversations, but we have to bring up awkward topics frequently with our clients, but they have to bring them up with us, whether they're going through a divorce or they want to change a beneficiary, get rid of a kid who's you know not been doing the right thing, or we have a client with a child with with a with a with an abuse issue whether it's drug or alcohol or or gambling so there's these awkward moments and and you know david said on the break and you agreed that sometimes we just have to shut up and listen but are there any tools there um for a person who's feeling these awkward or embarrassing moments that they could use to get through it or is it really dependent on us just being empathy, empathetic and being good listeners, or is it both? Yeah, definitely a both and. So the the solution, you know, if we were to to solve for the, I don't think awkwardness is a problem. I think it's a human, a human condition. But if we are to, to get comfortable with the inevitable uncertainty of life, which is going to invite awkwardness, it's really two-pronged. First is 
doing some of the pre-work in creating the self-awareness about what invites these feelings of awkwardness. And so typically when we think about this emotion, it's attached to approval, right? If we trip over our own two feet and land flat on our butts in our own house, but nobody is there to see it, do we feel awkward? Most would answer no, because it is a social emotion. If no one else was there to see it, we kind of just keep walking and don't pay attention. If we it do this publicly, no one right. else is there. Exactly, exactly. But if we do this in front of a hundred of our peers on stage, Whoops. the experience is entirely different, right? So the, the the core of understanding the emotion and the way we respond to it is understanding our relationship with approval. So some of your clients, whether they realize it at a conscious level or not, struggle to have these conversations with you about some of these things that feel personal or difficult or embarrassing or cringy, largely because to some extent, they are still seeking your approval. There's still a little bit of a dynamic that they have created mentally around the role that you play and the role that they play. So understanding that approval-seeking tendency uh, on both sides of the coin, whether it's you, know, you Michael, and David, or the, the, the client, Understanding that dynamic is the first really good step. And I have a lot of reflection questions and things I share on the book. After that, the next step is once you've done the awareness work to understand your uh, experience with approval, one of the things that has become increasingly evident in the research is enduring and embracing awkwardness is not a, a lack of knowing, it's a lack of conditioning. It's a lack of practice. We increasingly live in a world where we have removed the friction off of social conversations, off of social interactions. And so at the break, we started to talk about, uh, David made a, a, a comment that I loved about, you know, introverts versus extroverts. And often when people hear that I've written a book on awkwardness, they, you know, without, if they haven't met me, they wonder it must be written by an introvert. I am not an introvert. I am a square extrovert in the most extroverted of extroverts. You know, this is not a, a condition that I think is something that is for introverts. And the research supports that because you can describe yourself as awkward as a trait, or it can be a state. But something that we learned in the pandemic was there was a, bu a bunch of research that said that social muscles can atrophy the same way physical muscles do. So astronauts, True. polar explorers, folks that are more isolated in their jobs, without practice of those social muscles, they can weaken. And the next time they go into a social situation, it feels very odd. That sounded crazy to us. And then we all went into the pandemic. And we all went into isolation. And do you all remember, David, right. Michael, do you remember your first meeting back in person after we all started meeting again? Yes. Like, How do we do this? And not only that, but we, what we sat at the opposite ends of the conference room. We were both wearing masks. Right. We, you know, we had hazmat suits on. We thought we were going to die. Yeah. Yes. Yes. yes, but our but our social muscles as a collective, as a society, those of us who had never, even extroverts that had never experienced atrophy of social muscle, felt that for the first time of how when you don't practice having conversations. I share in the book a story of my first client meeting back in person. You know, I, I gave them this, this nice sales pitch, right? 15 minutes. And he put up his hand and I was like, yep, nailed it. Gave him a high five. And he says to me, Hannah. I was putting up my hand to tell you to stop. And I was like, oh God, just, I've forgotten how to human. Like this is just mortifying, right? But even extroverts, those muscles can atrophy. So when it comes to your clients having these conversations, one of the first questions I would, would wonder is, 
how often are you having these conversations with anyone, let alone your financial advisor? Are you comfortable having these conversations in general? Have you conditioned those social muscles to let these words flow into a room in front of another person before? If not, it will always feel difficult with your advisor. It'll feel difficult with your therapist. It'll feel difficult with everyone if these muscles are weak. And so we can strengthen them the same way we can strengthen any other muscle. Well, you can get a lot done even if you're feeling awkward. Yeah. And, right? It, it, you don't necessarily have to feel on top of your game to ask the right questions or to do the right things. And sometimes you have to press on and just make, make the action happen and worry about it later if you get good at that anyway. Yeah. One of my mantras is do it awkward and do it anyway. I can't tell you how often I have to kind of sit on my hands and go, well, I hate this, but here we go, right? Or this yes. isn't going to sound right at all, but let's go for it. And that's just it. I think too many people, David, find themselves stuck in inaction. And that's when things get dangerous. Do it awkward, but do it anyway. But inaction, staying on this side is not an option if you're trying to grow and progress. Right. And it, I'm glad, you know, you mentioned getting back to life after the pandemic. And I'm wondering how the workplace awkwardness has changed by this environment. You know, we're on mm. we're on Zoom right now. Ironically, ironically, you know, the chairman or, or whoever runs Zoom um, made an announcement over the weekend that all of his employees have to come back to work. Right. Which I saw this, yeah. It's just so ironic to me. But how has how has the work from home environment changed, you know, people getting even more ingrained in these habits that they have? Yeah, both for the better and for the worse. So I'll, I'll start with the better, which, you know, I like to throw in a little bit of optimism. One of the best things that came out of this is that when we were all thrown into work from home, there was a unique opportunity for everyone to be forced, I don't know if I like that choice of words, but to be forced to let their awkward edges show. So I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book, she worked for a large telecom company. And when everything went virtual, people didn't really have time to curate their Zoom background. It was sort of like, hurry up and figure this out, right? So her CEO would run all hands meetings. And she said, gosh, the CEO was so stiff. This guy never cracked a smile. I'm pretty sure he wore a suit to bed. You know, this guy just was just very, very business type. And when we all had to go virtual very suddenly, all of a sudden he was running his all hands meetings virtually and the daughter was pulling on the sleeve and the dog was barking and all of his imperfect, awkward edges were on display and people loved it. The whole company loved it. They're like, oh, he's human. Thank God. I didn't think I could relate to this. All, right? Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't relate to the guy before. Yeah, his sure. his uh, kind of uh, ratings went up. His executive leadership team, his, his trust levels went up, his relatability went up. All these markers went way up. And so I think that is one of the better things to have come from this experience is that it gave us all permission. You know, nowadays, if a dog is barking or a child is in the room or something, we don't even blink about it. We've, we've enjoyed the opportunity to let these bumpy edges show. Now... The shadow side is that as we've increasingly become reliant on optimizing for smoothness in our workplaces, it's become even more challenging for especially certain generations, the millennial Gen Z, who are unaccustomed to having an important confrontational conversation, what could be an awkward conversation, 
they are not conditioned for them. This is a generation that swipes right to decide if they're going to go on a date. They don't even have to ask for a phone number, right? And so there's a conditioning element in which social conversations, social interactions, which is where awkwardness builds, those muscles are weaker than ever before. And I, I fear that a lot of this hybrid environment, it's easy to just turn off your video. It's easy to just opt out, right? For when you're in the room, a little harder to do so. So I think the shadow side of all of this is a lot of these muscles, you have to be intentional at keeping them strong because by default, the environment's not built to create that anymore. Does, I think I know the answer to this. So, so being awkward, you know, makes you a more genuine person. How does it affect whether you're a good decision maker or not? How, how, how does it affect your ability to lead, to make wise investment decisions? Is there any correlation whatsoever? Sure. I mean, if we're going to use the, the language broadly, I think, you know, a willingness to stay in the awkwardness is a willingness to stay in uncertainty, right? So to eliminate awkwardness, sometimes, you know, I hear people say, I just want, I just want to get rid of all these awkward feelings. If you're going to get rid of it, you are eliminating life's uncertainty. So good luck. Let me know if you figure that out, right? So we're not going to eliminate it. But what to me, someone who, you know, the expression I use in the book is building awkward tolerance, right? Giving yourself the awkward advantage. If you can build the tolerance as a leader, as an investor, as a business decision maker, what that tells me is you're willing to stay in the uncertainty a little longer and make an informed decision rather than rushing to just hurry up and make a decision, a good enough decision. Can you tolerate the ambiguity a little longer, even if it's uncomfortable? even if your you know, stakeholder is looking for an answer. So I'll just make it concrete with a very quick example. There's a, a, one of my co-CEOs at an organization called Chief. Her name is Lindsay Kaplan. I interviewed her for the book. Their model when they started Chief was a women's network that was entirely an in-person model. They would meet in these clubhouses in these cities. Pandemic hit, they had lots of investors who now all of a sudden are going, what you gonna do? We just gave you all this money and your model is this in-person thing. You just spent a fortune on these clubhouses. What are you going to do? And if she was trying to hurry up and smooth over the awkwardness of this situation, they would have rushed to a decision. But instead, she owned the awkwardness and said to her investors, I don't know. Right? It's pretty awkward to say this, but you know, my, my co-founder and I, we don't know. But we are spending the next few weeks figuring it out. And I just hope that you can give us a little more time as we figure out the right answer. Now, did that risk some of her aptitude, I think it could have, but they actually admired her more for it because when they did make the decision, it was strategic, it was thought out and her ability to stay in that awkward, messy middle for longer ended up now they're a billion dollar valuation, one of the first female founded unicorns. Just willing to stay there is a big, a big factor. Good decision. Mm-hmm, yeah. I wonder also, Hannah, again, maybe looking at it from an interpersonal standpoint, when you feel awkward with another person, a stranger, a new introduction, uh, at least I've learned this, and maybe it's true, that by putting the focus on the other person, you get out of yourself. You're not feeling mm -hmm. quite the awkwardness or the tongue-tiedness that you might feel otherwise. And really listening, really trying to concentrate on what the other person is really saying those seem to be helpful suggestions when you feel that awkwardness sort of overwhelm you a little bit. 
Yeah, that's a hundred percent. And it's, it's again, validated by the research, Tom Jilovich out of Cornell, he, you know, refers to the spotlight effect, which is, we think people are looking at us much more intensely right. and paying much closer attention to us than they are when the reality is they're wondering, does my hair look okay? Do I sound like an idiot right now? Do I sound like I don't know what I'm doing? You know, I can't, I can imagine there's plenty of advisors that in listening to their clients who themselves are feeling uncertain about what they're about to say, you know, especially newer advisors to the game and they are in their heads going, well, I hope I say the right thing to them, right? They're not worried about what the client's thinking right now. They're thinking, oh, I hope I give them the right advice right now. So just mm -hmm. exactly right, David, the tendency that we have to over amplify people's attention on us is one of our social traits that we're wired for that, you know, began with man-eating lions and saber-toothed tigers. We always had to be mindful of our own self for safety. Our brains are still the same brains, but we don't need that anymore. We can put our attention on the other and not worry about a tiger in the woods. And so that is an absolute strategy to use. When he was much younger, I actually saw Michael chase a saber-toothed tiger and <laughs> drag it down. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> You'd be surprised. That's not, that's not awkward. That's amazing. How tough that he is really was. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't quite recall that. Um, and I, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I've even encountered or seen a saber tooth tiger. But, I think that was a golden retriever, David. I yeah, think probably. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Maybe I. I could have been in an altered state. That's possible. <laughs> but I will, Hennig. You said something before about you'd rather deal with someone who's awkward but not inept. And and that really resonates with with what we do for a living. Because every single day, I tell all our, our advisors, you have to have an opinion, you have to have a take, right? Yes. So that woman who said to her investors, "I don't know yet," that was a great answer at that moment. But when a client says to David and I, "Do you think we're going to have a recession? When do you think interest rates are going to go back down? When do you think the economy is going to get better?" Saying I don't know is not an acceptable answer. Yeah. Right? We have to have an opinion. We don't have to be right. Yeah. But we have to have an opinion. And I think that that's exactly what you're saying is the distinction that needs to be made. I can completely understand when I'm at the doctor and saying, I have this terrible rash. What is it? And somebody just looks at me and says, I don't know. That's not comforting to me. Right? I, I do need some semblance of expertise in that moment. What I invite people to do in those moments is to just understand that giving your best guess or giving your educated, you know, opinion with still allowing for an inch of uncertainty is how we can manage those moments better. I think we run into danger when we try to, you know, just kind of cover up the inevitable uncertainty or cover up the awkwardness entirely with a either, you know, based on what I think it's going to be X or, you know, it's definitely going to be Y. I think it's okay to say, you know, looking at the past and looking at history, patterns of history, you know, what I could see potentially happening is this, but what I do want to be mindful of is not painting with too broad a brush. And it's a bit awkward to tell you, I don't want to tell you definitively, but I think the right thing to do as your advisors to tell you that we're studying day by day, we're keeping track of things. And as we have, you know, more answers and less ambiguity, you'll have them. But there are some folks, I remember one of my first financial advisors, he couldn't even say that. And instead he would, you know, create these blanket uh, statements of assumption that when they didn't end up being even remotely close to that, it actually eroded trust versus if he just created a little bit of a, a window of comfortable uncertainty in which I could trust him that he was still on top of it. 
but didn't have the full answers yet, that's the language that we all need to hone, right? Expertise is no longer having all the answers. It's trusting that when you do have them, you'll share them with me and communicating that to me. And, and to your point, we, we, you know, yeah, there are certain things we have the answers to, right? There's tax sure. code, there's, there's, there's rules and IRAs. Those are the answers we have to have. Those are right or wrong. But in terms of the market, there are always opinions, right? They're educated opinions. There, It's never, if you speak in euphemisms, you're right, we're going to erode trust. Yeah. And I think that's honestly what, what authenticity, to bring it back to David's earlier comment, what authenticity in the modern era of advisors, of leaderships, of you know anybody who's in a thought leader role, authenticity these days is often just described as the willingness to say, I'm going to give you everything I know, and I'm going to take care of you to the best of my ability. But for the little bit that I don't know, I'm not going to lie to you about that, right? And, and that is where, you know, I, I will follow a vendor, a partner, a, a client to the ends of the earth if they can be like that with me consistently. And so I think that's where modern trust comes from. And it's that willingness to stay in that little bit of that gap space a little longer. I think, well, I think too, to go back on another point we made is that if you're listening carefully enough, you know when to home in on something that really matters to someone. Right. As an example, Mike, you were talking earlier about 70% of the companies, you know, making or exceeding earnings estimates, right? Which is a nice number. But what about my companies? I'm okay. much more interested in how, how my companies did as opposed to the overall market. And so being able to be sure that we zero in on that person's needs or what are they really asking for, I think is maybe a, a pretty salient point here. Yeah, I, I think a, just a good maybe summary to, to some of this is that not every twinge of cringe needs to be eliminated or worked on, right? Some of it's just natural to the human experience. I think where I feel very passionate is when those feelings stop you from meeting your full performance, from keeping you from taking a risk that you want to take, from having the conversation that needs to be had, when those feelings lead to avoidance or inaction, then it's time that we take a new strategy. It's time to start reconditioning those social muscles so that they're serving us better. But not everything needs to be addressed, just the ones where it's making a difference in our production or performance. So to that point, to, re to, to recondition those social mu muscles, what do, mm -hmm. what do they do? What do they need to do? What actions do they need to take? Yeah, Curious. yeah. I, I give lots of exercises in the book, but just, you know, simple examples is, you know, we kind of started to talk about one is what these, whatever conversations are a little bit tough. First of all, we've gotten away from rehearsal and role play. That's something that's the oldest sales trick in the book, you know, role playing. We used to do it, you know, decades ago. And increasingly, right. I talk to firms who never do it. They right. never do it. And I remind them that, you know, when you're not practicing with each other, you're practicing on your clients. You're practicing on your stakeholders. When you don't take the time to let those words flow at least one other, two other, three other times before, you are practicing in the big high stakes moments. And there's no way around that. There's no exception to that rule because the first time you say it becomes your practice. So is that a risk worth taking? And what other things can we do to just condition our social muscles? Can you send a meal back if it wasn't correct? Can you, you know, have a conversation that was a little bit edgy that you've been avoiding, you know, just any little ways that you can incorporate it into your day will serve you the next time you need to do it in whatever capacity that is work or otherwise. Great point. And, and is that, is that, is that eventually become muscle memory? Is it just taking a deep breath and, and bullying your way through it? You know, how do you, how do you get through those moments the first yeah. two or three times, Hannah? 
Yeah, I, there's a couple strategies I share in the book too, but really there's a few ways. A, sometimes it can be taking a deep breath, right? If it's low stakes enough, just take a deep breath and do it. In other you know, facets of business, I often use the expression, call your hype squad, right? Get a, get a crew of people around you who will hold the mirror up and tell you the truth about the interaction. Because one thing about awkwardness is, again, it's a very amplifying effect in our brains. My God, I can't believe I said that in the meeting. Everyone thinks I'm an idiot now. Everyone thinks I'm just queen of blunders. When you actually call on someone else that was in that meeting, the reality is often, oh, I forgot about it already, right? No big deal. It's fine. They're not going to care, right? So sometimes using a, a different person to help you raise the mirror and show you the truth of the matter is very helpful. But it depends on the intensity of the moment. Either way, the more times, the more reps that you can put in in similar situations, even if it's not the same, any interaction will feel easier. We just have to keep those muscles strengthened. We can't wait until they come. We have to put ourselves in those situations intentionally. David, any, uh, any last questions before we run out of time? Well, I think that uh, that point is really important, meaning practice, practice, practice. It doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it makes things a lot better uh, for, for those of us who are professionals and really care about these things. And uh, I can remember a couple of episodes of... Uh, uh, taking my daughter's stuffed animals and, and putting them along the wall and mm. making a presentation to them. And they were, they were a wonderful first audience because they didn't ever interrupt. And that's a good place to start <laughs> yeah. if you don't have anything else to go to. And what did you call your squad there? Your The hype squad. The They're hype just kinda, squad. You, it's your, it's your crew that. of people who will, who will remind you the truth of the situation and who you are. And, you know, I, I think just a final point on this is just the timeliness of this skill set cannot be understated because in this world where AI is picking up a lot of our administrative tasks and you know research is becoming more generated, the skills, there's actually some research that's come out recently, the skills that are going to stand out above all are our social skills, things like public speaking, our relationship building with others, boundary setting, and vulnerability. Those are some of the top three current leadership skills because they can't be outsourced, they can't be automated, and they are still the core human skills. So this isn't just right. me wanting people to be more awkward for fun for my own kicks, right? This is also about our social muscle is now the one muscle that AI cannot take over on our behalf. And so it's on us to develop it day to day. And we have less than a minute. Oh, oh we have 30 seconds for our, for, our, for our hard close. Tell us again how we get your book and when it comes out. And what's the name oh. one more time? Thank you. It is called Good Awkward, How to Embrace the Embarrassing and Celebrate the Cringe to Become the Bravest You. It's been endorsed by former HBR editor Karen Dillon, football player Russell Wilson, all sorts of folks. So I'm very proud of it. It comes out September 26th of this year, available for pre-order now. And if they want to go to goodawkward.com, you can learn more about the book. And my website is hennapryor.com. It redirects to my speaking website. But if this resonates for anyone, I'd love to talk more to your organizations. I get very excited about this stuff and amongst other topics and uh, just really grateful for the conversation with both of you. We're That's grateful as well. So thank you for making the time. And David, thank you for pinch hitting for uh, Dominic. You did a great job. You both did. And we will be back next week. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic and Michael will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, 
Have a great week. 